0: And today I want you to return to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we saw in our last session that the church in Ephesus, the church in Rome, the church in Alexandria, the church in Antioch, particularly those four large cities, was really under assault the first government-issued persecution. Now, I realize that most Christians think that the church was always persecuted by the government, but it was not. There was no Empire-wide official legal persecution of the government against the church until the year 64. All persecution previous to that time was a religious persecution. Pagans who didn't like the new faith, Jews who didn't like these new Christians. It was a religious persecution and it was very, very intense. But in the year 64, when the great fire of Rome took place and Rome was burned to the ground, Nero alleged that Christians were behind the burning. He accused them of being arsonists. And for that reason, the government issued the order to begin to round up these Christians in the biggest cities of the Roman Empire, and they were being put in prison. They were being hunted like animals. It was horrific what began to happen to the early church nearly overnight. Now, just imagine... If you in your country have never had to deal with governmental persecution, but in one night everything changed and Christians began to be rounded up, put in prison, burned at the stake, decapitated, thrown to animals, some Christians might say, hey, 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 hey. When we entered the game, we didn't know this was the game we were going to play. No, well, we're not up for this. We never agreed to this. Fire always reveals who people really are. We don't want fire. None of us want it, but it comes whether we want it or not. And fire always reveals who people are. And when the fire came to Ephesus, many people that Timothy thought were solid leaders. He had worked with them for years and years, some of them trained by the apostle Paul, but they had never been through this kind of fire And the fire was so intense that a great number of them began to bail out and abandon ship. And now Timothy is leading the church of Ephesus and he is devastated because of people that he thought he could trust, that he could always depend upon. And they came to him and said, see you later, pastor. We're not up for this. We never agreed to this. And they began jumping ship. And now he is leading a great church that is in decline because of persecution. Funerals to conduct, people that are dying, people that are being fed to the lions in the local stadium. Horrible, horrible things. And when he needs his leaders to be there to help him, where are they? A great number of them left. And he's just devastated. And we know from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 that he has a spirit of fear. Why does he have a spirit of fear? Because he's the most visible Christian in the city. He could be rounded up. Imagine if Roman authorities could get their hands on him. He's the most visible leader in the city. Imagine what kind of a wretched death they would give to him in order to scare all the surviving believers. And Timothy knew, if they ever get their hands on me, there's no telling what they're going to do to me. And he knew they could knock on his door at any moment. And rather than remember God's faithful, delivering power through everything he's already been through in the past, he's focusing on what he's facing right now. And I told you in the last session, if all you do is face What you're looking at right now, it's going to scare you. It's going to open the door for a spirit of fear. And that's why you need to put it on pause and walk through the history of God's faithfulness with you in the past. But finally, we come to 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. We covered this in the last session. Let's cover it again. Paul says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. When he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed, the word ashamed is a Greek word which describes one that is so embarrassed their face is blushed, their face is red. They're red-faced. And here in the Greek it is a negative with a prohibition which means stop being ashamed. What in the world are you ashamed of? Stop being ashamed, number one, of the testimony of our Lord, secondly, nor of me, His prisoner. Why was Timothy tempted to be ashamed of Paul? Because Paul's a prisoner. He's in prison in Rome. He's been rounded up. He's been called one of the chief arsonists that burned down the fire of Rome. The fake news is out there and anyone affiliated with Paul becomes a target. And now Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, put an end to this spirit of fear. Stop being ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, And then he adds, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now I know that when you've lived in a free country and your country has been very free until recent years where Christians haven't had to deal with a lot of flack. Now we've entered a new season. And sometimes when you stand for your faith and you stand for biblical values, you have to put up with flack, people that come against you. It just goes with the gospel. It may be new to you, It's not new to the rest of the world. The rest of the world has been encountering this for a long, long time. There are afflictions sometimes that come with the gospel. But Paul says to Timothy, and he says to me and to you, suffer according to the power of God. And according to is the Greek word kata. And the word kata describes something that is dominating, subjugating conquering. And here we have a divine promise that if you're dealing with hardship because of the gospel, the power of God will show up on you. The power of God will dominate you. The power of God will subjugate you. The power of God will conquer you, which means you're not going to deal with a hardship by yourself, but in the midst of it, God will join himself to you. And the power of God will enable you and strengthen you to deal with that you will experience the power of God. And stories of God's power showing up in the early days when the church was being persecuted are amazing. For example, Nero, when he burned Christians in his own backyard, dipped them in tar, tied them to stakes, set them on fire, he waited to hear them scream in terror that Nero was terrorized by them because he heard them singing songs antiphonally to God while their bodies burned. They may have been burning, but they were in the power of God, dominated. They experienced the divine power of God. Now, I'm not hoping or wishing or prophesying that you're going to be burned at the stake. But my friends, for whatever it is you're dealing with, if those believers could experience the power of God, the power of God is available to you as well. And that's what he says. Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, being dominated, subjugated, conquered by the power of God. Then he says in verse 9, who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, verse 10, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death. That was important because they were all facing death. He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Then he adds, through the gospel. Hang on to that. Through the gospel. And then in verse 11, he says, where unto, what does that mean? Unto this gospel, where unto this great glorious gospel, he says, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. He's magnifying his office. He says it's unto this great glorious powerful, delivering gospel that I've been appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. And then in verse 12, he says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And I'm going to use my notes because I have some wonderful things to share with you today. But notice he says, I'm appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles for the which cause I also suffer these things. Paul was able to keep it all clear in his head. And you need to keep it clear too. When he came under attack, people began to say vicious unclear. True things about him. Here he is in jail being accused of being an arsonist. Number one, he knew the truth. He was not an arsonist and he had committed no crime. You need to know the truth about yourself and be confident and be free in your own conscience. Paul was free in himself, he knew who he was. He says, Hey, I have committed no crime. Under this great and glorious gospel, I've been appointed a preacher an apostle, a teacher of the Gentile, for the which cause. It's because of the call on my life. It is because of the gospel that this attack has been triggered. Paul was able to keep it clear. It wasn't personal about him. It was about the call. It was about the message. The devil was after the message, and he was after that man who carried the message. We carry light, and Satan hates the light, and he hates the light bearers, and Paul understood it's not about me it's about my call. It's about the message. Unto this gospel, I've been appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles, and that's why I'm suffering these things. And the word suffer here is the Greek word pasco, and the word pasco is a very important Greek word which primarily carries the idea of emotional suffering. It's very strong in relation to feelings. Emotional suffering. What kind of emotional suffering? was Paul dealing with? Well, he was in prison. He knew the whole world was talking about him. The whole world at that time really was the whole world of the Roman Empire. The whole Roman Empire heard the name of this notorious criminal that had been arrested who was one of the ringleaders who forged the arson to burn down the city of Rome. And Paul is in jail and emotionally he knows there's a lot of bad press out there about me that is not true. And not only that, When you come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says that when he came to his first trial when he was arrested, all of his friends abandoned him. They walked out on him. They left him standing in the lurch at the worst possible moment and now he is in jail. And Paul says, you know, I've been through some emotional trauma in the middle of all these events. But he says, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. And the word ashamed is this Greek word which means to be disgraced. He says, I'm not disgraced. It means to be put to shame, to be embarrassed. The very Greek word, which means to be red-faced or your face to be completely blushed from embarrassment. Paul says, I'm not red-faced. I'm not ashamed. And he says, for I know whom I have believed. The words I know are a translation of the Greek word oida, which describes knowledge gained by personal experience or personal observation. It was the equivalent of saying, hey, I've had a lot of experience with God, and based on my experience with Him and the things I've observed about His work in my life in the past, there are some things that I know, and I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Circle that word persuaded in your Bible. It is a form of the Greek word patho. This is really, really important. The word patho describes one that is convinced, even better, one that has been coaxed into believing, one that has been swayed from one opinion to another opinion, as a result, now he has absolute confidence, he's convinced to the core he has a rock-solid certainty, but because it is the word patho, it means he didn't begin with that rock-solid certainty, he had to talk himself into it. That's what the word patho means. Well, here was Paul sitting in jail. Let me ask you, who was going to encourage Paul? He was there by himself. This word patho here, translated persuaded, describes self-talk or self-persuasion. Sitting in that prison where Paul had suffered emotionally and was traumatized by all of these events and all the bad press about him, Paul knew it was time for him to stop listening to his thoughts. And it was time for him to start speaking to himself. There's a time when you have to tell your mind to be silent and you've got to speak to your mind and tell it what to think and tell it what to believe. And Paul began walking himself out of all of that anxiety into a place of faith. He swayed himself from one position to another. He coaxed himself from feeling any kind of fear into a place of faith until finally he was convinced to the core, he had a rock-solid certainty that God was going to see him through this. Self-talk. If you're in a place where you have no one to encourage you, I already saw you, number one, you have the power of memory. That's your stoker, your poker. You can stir your memories and stir up your faith, but you've got a mouth. And rather than to listen to all your doubtful speculations, you need to start using your mouth to talk yourself out of a bad place into a good place. And if you'll let your ears hear your mouth speaking words of faith, you'll begin to believe. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. If you don't have anybody else to speak faith to you, let your mouth speak faith to you. Paul talked himself into a place of faith. Wow. And he says, I'm persuaded that he is able. The word able, the Greek word dunitas, It describes ability, capability, one that is competent for any task, a force that causes one to be capable, one that is competent. He says, God is absolutely capable of working in my situation. Even though naturally he may have wondered if things were going to be okay, he talked himself patho into this place of faith. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded rock-solid certainty, patho, I've talked myself into this place of confidence and I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed in Him against that day. The word keep, a Greek word which means listen, to save, to protect, to preserve, or to guard. So you could translate He's able to save, protect, preserve, and guard, but this word keep is specifically a Greek word which depicted a military guard who showed uninterrupted vigilance in guarding a territory that had been assigned to him. It was the same word used to describe the uninterrupted vigilance of shepherds in keeping the flocks that they were responsible for. And by using this word keep, the Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm his territory. I belong to Him. I called Him the Lord of my life. I was assigned to Him, and now He's going to keep me like the great military guard that He is. God is going to use uninterrupted vigilance to watch over me and to keep me. I'm a sheep. He is my shepherd. And just like a shepherd who shows uninterrupted vigilance in keeping his flock, He is watching over me. You see, Paul's talked himself into quite a position of faith. He says he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The word committed, the Greek word parathiki. Oh, it's such a wonderful word. The word para means alongside, like coming alongside of something. The word thiki means to place or to put. When you put the two words together, here in the King James Version, it's translated as the word committed, but it means... To entrust, to deposit, to commit into one's charge or trust for safe keeping. And every time I see this Greek word paratheke, I go back in my mind to when I was a kid. My dad was paid on Thursday nights. And on Thursday nights, we did two things always. We went to buy groceries and then daddy went by the bank. And back in those days, there were no drive-through tellers, so you had to get out of your car, walk up to the bank where there was a depository box. Remember those days? If you don't remember those days, I'm telling you, one time people did this. It was a metal handle. It was something that you opened. It was the depository or the repository. And once you put your money in and closed it, it was irretrievable. Nobody could take it out. You couldn't take it out. You couldn't take it out. Once you put it in and closed the door, you were deposited into the bank. It was not even available for you to reach in and take out. And now Paul says, hey, I committed me unto him against that day, para, I pulled up alongside of Christ, I placed my life into him. I'm in him. Nobody can touch me. I can't even take myself out of him. I am in him. I'm locked up in him. There's no safer place than that. Wow. Paul's walked himself into this place of faith. Rock solid certainty. You can do that too. It doesn't matter where you are whether it's friends near you or nobody near you. You've got a mouth and you can patho, you can persuade yourself, coax yourself into a place of faith. That's what Paul did when he was imprisoned by himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says, "Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above..." measure. And of course, in my tradition that I grew up in, my denominational church, I was told that Paul had a problem with arrogance and pride. And so God released the devil to keep him humble. But hey, the devil's never going to keep anybody humble. The devil's the author of pride. If the devil was released on him, the devil would have just made it worse. And I was also taught that the thorn in the flesh was some kind of a malady like epilepsy. We were told in my particular church that Paul had runny eyes. I read in one document that he was a hunchback and that he had club feet. Well, you can't find any of that in the Bible. That is just religious tradition, the sayings of men. Then what was the thorn in the flesh? Well, let's look at this verse. I want you to see what triggers an attack. First of all, he says, "...unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations." Exalted above measure people take to mean pride. Doesn't mean that at all. It does not mean that. It's a Greek word, "hooper rial," which is a compound of the word "hooper" and the word "rial." The word "hooper" means over, above, and beyond. It depicts something that is way beyond measure and conveys the idea of something that is greater, superior, higher, better, more than a match for utmost, paramount, or foremost. It describes something that is first-rate, first-class, top-notch, unsurpassed, unequaled, unrivaled by any person or thing. That's the word hooper, the first part of the phrase exalted above measure. The second part of the word is the Greek word hiero, which means to lift up, to raise up, to be exalted. And when compounded, the two words together form the word hupareo, which pictures a person who has been supremely exalted, one who has been magnified, increased, and lifted up to a place of great influence. And here Paul is describing the impact of his ministry. His ministry has gone to places nobody else has ever gone to. He is preached to kings, to governors. He has had an impact like no one else. And here Paul is acknowledging the impact of his ministry. He says through the abundance of the revelations. The word abundance, the Greek word hooper-bolo, it's amazing. It's a compound of the word hooper and the word balo. The word hooper means to cast or the word balo means to cast or to throw. When compounded together with the word Hooper, it forms the word Hooper bolo, which describes something, listen to this, that is phenomenal something that is extraordinary, unparalleled or unmatched. It is the very word which was used to describe an archer who aimed his arrow for the bullseye, but when he released the string, he shot his arrow and watched as the arrow flew way over the top of the target. It was the equivalent of saying, I have received revelations superior beyond what anybody else has ever heard or seen, he's describing the quality of his revelations. He says, and last, my impact should become too great because of these overshooting, magnificent revelations that I have received. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Well, because it says there was given to me, people religiously assume that it was given to him by God. It doesn't say that. He clearly says... It was the messenger of Satan. And in fact, when it says there was given me, a better translation would be there was assigned to me, assigned to me, a thorn in the flesh. Well, if the thorn was not an eye problem or epilepsy or club feet or a hunchback, what was the thorn? Well, the word thorn in Greek describes a dangerously sharp spiked instrument or tool that was used to describe the stake on which an enemy's head was stuck after being decapitated. Paul was saying, hey, my ministry has become so enhanced, so enlarged, so magnified. These revelations are so phenomenal that there was a sign to me, a thorn in the flesh. The devil wants my head on a stake. And then he says, the messenger of Satan. The word messenger, the Greek word angelos, it's the word for an angel, or one that is dispatched on a special mission. It could be a messenger who is dispatched to perform a specific assignment. And then he calls it specifically the messenger of Satan, the word Satan, the Greek word satanus, which describes one who conspires against Because the word Satan is used here, it means Satan was developing conspiracies to take Paul down. There was no happenstance about this. He was working plans, working strategies to put Paul's head on a stake. And then he adds the messenger of Satan to buffet me, the word buffet, the Greek word kolaphidzo. But the original form of the word kolaphidzo describes the knuckles, the knuckles. But when it becomes kolaphidzo, like it's used in this verse... It refers to beatings with the fist. And the tense describes unending, unrelenting, continuous, repetitious beatings and beatings and beatings and beatings. He said, the messenger of Satan was dispatched and assigned to me, forming all kinds of conspiracies to regularly beat me and distract me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, when you put it all together, how should this verse be translated? Well, let me give you the RIV. You say, what's the RIV? Renner's Interpretive Version, which I'm really working on right now. It's a conceptual translation of the Greek New Testament. And here is the RIV of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, get seven, because this will blow religion out of the water. Here's a real translation of this verse. Are you ready? Because of the phenomenal revelations I have received... And on account of the vast number of these revelations that God has entrusted to me and to hinder the highly visible progress I am making, a special messenger has been sent from Satan to harass me with constant distractions and headaches. There's no doubt about it. Satan wants my head on a stake Satan is constantly trying to buffet and distract me in an attempt to keep me from reaching a higher level of visibility and recognition and to sidetrack me from preaching my revelations. Now that's a total different take on that verse, but that's really what the Greek means. I'm going to read it to you again. Because of the phenomenal revelations I've received and on account of the vast number of these revelations that God has entrusted to me and to hinder the highly visible progress that I am making, that's what it means, lest I should be exalted above measure. A special messenger has been sent from Satan to harass me with constant distractions and headaches. There's no doubt about it, Satan wants my head on a stake. That's what the word thorn means. (sighs) Satan is constantly trying to buffet and distract me in an attempt to keep me from reaching a higher level of visibility and recognition and to sidetrack me from preaching my revelations. Now that is amazing when you consider the King James Version says, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, lest I should be exalted above measure.'" Through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Lest I should be exalted above measure literally means to keep me from reaching a higher level of visibility and recognition and to sidetrack me from preaching my revelations. So Paul here in this verse says, you want to know why attacks happen? I'm going to tell you when you're on the edge of a great breakthrough, when you are really making progress, the devil's not going to sit on the side and just twiddle his thumbs and watch you go to amazing places. He, like Satan, the word Satanus, is going to begin to develop conspiracies to slow you down, knock you out of the game. And when you become exceedingly threatening to the domain of darkness, he'll do everything he can to put your head on a stake. Now, why is this so important? And why was Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 so clear about understanding he was suffering because of his call, because he was writing to Timothy, and Timothy was suffering. He's saying to Timothy, 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 don't don't personalize this. It's not about you. He said, unto this gospel, I'm appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles, For the which cause? It's because of that, because of the call on me, because of the gospel that's been entrusted to me, because of the revelations that I preach. For the which cause? I also suffer these things. Wow. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. He knew who he was. He knew who he was not. Do you? You need to know who you are. When you enter into the ministry and into public life, there's a lot of talk about you that people have never met you and don't know a thing about you, but they hear something, what somebody else said, and they begin to repeat it as if it is fact, and they don't have a clue what they're talking about. That's why it's important for you to know who you are. You need to know who you are. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. He's had some time to think because he is in prison. He says, for I know, the Greek word oida. I've had experience with God. I've had a lot of observations of how God works in my life. And I am persuaded, the Greek word patho, rather than give way to a spirit of fear. I've swayed myself. I've coaxed myself into a rock solid position, rock solid certainty of believing that he is able to keep he is the uninterrupted vigilance of a guard that's watching over me because I am his property. I'm a sheep and therefore he has the uninterrupted vigilance of a shepherd and he is watching over me and he is going to keep what I have committed unto him, para thiki. Para, I pulled up alongside of him. Para, I'm alongside of him, thiki. I entrusted, I committed, I deposited myself into him. Can't even retrieve myself out of him. I'm in him. I'm safe in him. Wow. But then when you come to 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, he continues to say to Timothy, That good thing which was committed unto you, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And now we find that just as we pulled up alongside of Christ and placed ourselves in Him, Christ has deposited some things in us. He also has made a deposit. That's what it says in verse 14. That good thing, what God has placed in you, your dream, your vision, the Holy Ghost in you, He calls it a good thing. It's a good thing. It's so good the devil's after it. That good thing which was committed unto thee, committed unto thee, is the same word committed, which we saw in the previous verse. Parathiki. God came alongside of us and placed in us, He made a deposit into us. And the verse says, we are to keep it by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And guess what? The word keep is the same word keep, which is used (laughs) amazingly in verse 12, where Paul says, he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Now the same word is used here, which means keep, the Greek word tereo, the uninterrupted vigilance of a soldier who walks over a particular piece of property that's been assigned to his guard, or the uninterrupted vigilance of a shepherd who's been appointed to watch over a sheep or a flock of sheep, Now Paul says in the same way that God is watching over you because you're his property, in the same way that Christ is watching over you like a shepherd because you are his sheep, you in the very same way are to have uninterrupted vigilance in guarding what God has entrusted to you. That is your assignment. That is your property. You hang on to it. You hold on to it and you don't let anybody take it from you. Like a shepherd watching over a sheep, you watch over that precious thing, that good thing, which was placed in you by the Holy Ghost, which dwells in us. Oh, it's so powerful. The Holy Ghost dwells in us, which means we're not doing this by ourselves. We're doing this with the help of the Holy Ghost. But hey, I want to quote to you, First John, chapter five, verse four. Because you might say, "Oh, this is a big assignment. I'm under such pressure, and when you're under pressure, you're tempted to let go and to release. Don't let go, don't release. You can win the battle. You can, because First John five verse four says, "For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even." Our faith. It begins by saying, Whatever is born of God, are you born of God? Then it's describing you. It's describing me. I am born of God. If you've called Jesus the Lord of your life, you are born of God. Well then what does this verse say to you? Whatever is born of God overcometh, overcometh the world. The word worldly, the Greek word cosmos, it describes world, society, and Everything around you is really a good word for us to meditate on right now. We overcome society. We overcome all of our surroundings. For this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. But you know what's really interesting when you read this in the Greek text? The word overcometh, the word victory, and the word overcometh again. All three times in Greek is the word niki. It says niki, niki, niki three times in a single verse. And this is very, very unusual unless you're really trying to make a point. And this word translated, overcometh victory and overcometh again. The Greek word niki means to conquer, to overcome. It is the word which was used to portray athletes who gained the mastery in a competition and reign supreme as champions, ultimate champions, or the superior position of an overcomer. And according to this verse, whatever is born of God overcomes Niki, the world. And this is the Niki, the victory, that overcometh Niki, the world. Even our faith, it's like God is throwing victory in our direction. But the only way to retain that victory, it says, is through faith. And that leads us back to 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, where Paul says, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded, the Greek word patho. Oh, I love that. One that is convinced, coaxed, or swayed from one opinion to the opinion of another. One that has developed absolute confidence convinced to the core, rock solid certainty rather than give way to his emotions and give way to what he's hearing people say about him rather than give way to speculations about what possibly could happen which would create in him a spirit of fear. Paul decided to quit listening to what his head is saying and start speaking to himself. And he walks himself patho into rock solid certainty, a place of Of faith and even though he was in prison being lamb blasted by the world all around him for something that he did not do he stayed in faith and stayed in victory and now he's got this letter from Timothy who is free who's worried that he might suffer it's not suffering yet but he's worried that he might suffer but Timothy has written a letter to Paul who really is in jail and the prisoner Is having more victory than Timothy because he's not controlled by a spirit of fear. Timothy is. And even in jail, he's in better shape than Timothy, who is free. Because Paul has chosen to stay in a place of faith and not give way to a spirit of fear. And my friend, if you've had to deal with a spirit of fear, I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. It's a spirit. If to take authority over it, just like it came, it will leave you. I rebuke that spirit of fear in the name of Jesus, and I charge you to begin using your mouth to speak words of faith, to walk yourself into a position where you are rock solid, convinced to the core that He is able to keep whatever it is that you've committed unto Him.